Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When Rick comes on the podcast, we'll have to ask him. <laughs> <laughs> what were you thinking? I have so many questions, and he's just going to be like, Emily, I don't know. No, I got those dates off Wikipedia. I don't know, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> everybody, and welcome back to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin-offs. I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. And I'm Emily, a classic scholar-ish. And if you're listening to this, uh, thank you for being a Trials of Apollo supporter. <laughs> That's so cool and smart and correct, correct of you. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a very exciting weekend. Yes, we did. Uh, we were at New York Comic Con celebrating Percy Jackson in many, many ways. <laughs> yes. If you saw two girls dressed up as Selena and Clarice that were both pretty short, that was us on Thursday. <laughs> if you were like, oh, two children dressed as Clarice <laughs> and Selena. Yeah, funny story. I'm like five foot three on a good day. And Phoebe makes me look tall. <laughs> Um, we got to meet up with some friends. We did. We saw Erica from Seaweed Brain, mm-hmm. Robert from The Damn Meme Page. We saw Mike from The Newest Olympian and just spent Sunday with them and at the Percy Jackson panel. And um, Phoebe got to meet Luke Arnold, which was also very exciting for her. I got to meet Luke Arnold. 
But we also got to have some incredible conversations with some of the creatives behind the TV show. Yes, because part of our press stuff was that we actually got to be at the roundtable interviews after the panel, which was also really exciting, which we also have audio of. We will not play for you in solidarity with the Screen Actors Guild. But as soon as they get fair contracts, we will discuss. Hopefully that will be before the show airs. It it better be. It better be. be. I feel, I think it will be. I hope it will be. (laughs) Yeah. But all that and all of our stories and everything, all of the audio from it will be posted as like its own sort of interlude episode. Yeah. Um, Basically, whenever we can post it, that's when we're going to. So if you're annoyed that we're we're gatekeeping, don't be mad at us. We didn't want it to be this way. Direct that anger at the studios where it belongs because all of the actresses are fair contracts, just like the writers have gotten. Anyway, very fun weekend. Very cool to connect with everybody. And I am very excited to finally be able to share what we learned. Yeah, we've got some good stuff. Other big things to announce here at the top of the episode, we now have a merch shop. I don't think we've done that up front yet. Woohoo, we made merch. And by we, I mean Phoebe. It's her art. You don't want my art. You want. Hers. I think you should design something and put it in the merch shop. <laughs> you should create your own rendition of the Monster Donut. We'll have the Phoebe edition of the shirt and then also the Emily edition of the shirt. <laughs> Anyway, you can you can find that merch at monsterdonut.redbubble.com. It's also in our link tree if you don't feel like typing something out. Yeah. Please at PGOPod at your social media of choice if you wear our stuff or get it because I would love to see all of your beautiful faces wearing Phoebe's beautiful art. So let's talk about the hidden oracle. Honestly, like coming back to this book was like a breath of fresh air. It's so good. It's it's like I like that he's able to play with like poetry and like do, using a totally different voice than he's used to with yeah. Percy. It's like every line is a great one-liner. I actually hadn't reread this book. I haven't reread the tr- the Trials of Apollo ever. So the only time I've ever read this book was back in 2016 when it came out. And wow. I had just gotten home from Rome and had to hunt it down cuz I had been out of the loop for a month it came out and it wasn't at any of the bookstores in Rome. Feels appropriate though. It's like the seven. You just come back from your journey to the old world. Mm-hmm. I was living Percy Jackson, so I didn't need to worry about reading Percy Jackson. I was, I was there. So we begin with a very Lucifery image. Oh, that's true. Like you didn't, you didn't think that. I did not think of that. Oh my god, I felt very Lucifery, where he's, you know, we've got a god being cast out of the heavens, falling from the sky for, like, betraying the elder god. I don't know, I was getting a little, getting some vibes. Yeah, I was thinking, because he makes the comparison to Icarus, I was thinking a lot about Icarus. Mm, that's fair. I didn't think about Icarus. I like the the Lucifer comparison. No, I think Icarus is a good one too, though. The, like, flying too close to the sun. Right. Especially because I think in the Riordan verse, when we see the flashbacks all the way back in Battle of the Labyrinth of um, Daedalus and Icarus, it felt a lot more about a father failing his son than it did about, like, the folly of youth. Mm-hmm. Which, in this context, I think is a really interesting comparison. Yep. I This, this whole conversation for the next five episodes is going to be a lot of talking about fathers and sons i can tell you that yeah (laughs) we should while we're talking about the beginning we should bring up what apollo's first line is oh Mm mm-hmm 
it's back in the ti- the Titans curse. <laughs> oh, you meant like first first line. His first line. Because I don't think we mentioned what it was when we were talking about the Titans curse. And if we're still going to like say people's yeah. first lines, we probably should mention what his was. His original first line was, uh, little sister, what's up? You never call, you never write. I was getting worried. That's his original first line. His first spoken line of dialogue in this book is, no, no, it wasn't, please, in response to the your fault, your punishment, Mm. repeated Zeus line that he keeps hearing in his head. And his first first line, like the very first line of this book is, my name is Apollo. I used to be a god, which is a very simple opening line, but it reminded me of the conversation that we had about Luke's opening line, because his opening Mm. line in his diary was, my name is Luke. And we talked about that in comparison to Percy spending an entire page warning you to stop reading before saying my name is Percy Jackson (laughs) and how it kind of betrayed the fact that Luke wasn't thinking about how the story was going to affect the person who read it as much as Percy was and was only focusing on the story he was telling, which uh, feels very relevant to the way that Apollo tells his story. (laughs) Yep, it does. Because even though it's like an unfortunate story, he's thrilled to tell you it. Yeah, although he does reference later in the book, like, oh, I'm writing this now. Like, he clearly is telling it. Yeah, this book is very explicitly something that Apollo is, like, a story that Apollo is telling in a way that, like, obviously Heroes of Olympus isn't. Mm -hmm. And even Percy Jackson, it starts with that framing device, but then doesn't return to it, really. While this book is, like, it it wants you to know that Apollo is somewhere telling this story. Which, considering he is kind of the god of storytelling, makes sense. Mm-hmm. He references stories he's told about himself in the past as well, later in this book, which I thought was interesting. But we'll get into that then. Yeah. But he has been booted off Olympus, and he is having a hard time. Yeah. Um, he's, like, immediately mugged. <laughs> yeah, immediately mugged, and then immediately megged. Uh-huh. <laughs> One of the things that starts off in this chapter that I think is really interesting to track in this book is Apollo has a very interesting relationship I think to his form both as a god and as a mortal where I feel like part of his journey in this book is him kind of realizing that his body is like a real thing and a body Mm -hmm. like it's very clear that he doesn't think of like physical form in the same way as like mortals do which I thought was really interesting yeah Apollo does say something interesting where he's talking about how being encased in a mortal form does change the experience of life and does it changes the experience of existence and how to him it's almost like having mortality makes him fear death less makes him fear death less kind of that's what it kind of feels like he's saying or it's not that they don't fear death it's just they have a very it just like completely changes their relationship to death because I think in a godly form death is not death death is like being completely forgotten forever Mm -hmm. like death is not just like oh my mortal form is dead and my conscience is no longer on the plane of earth but somewhere else it's like not a single person remembers you there's no evidence that you existed there's nothing it's like you and you don't like go to the fields of asphodel you know you're just like gone yeah i'm trying to remember exactly what he says in that quote but the way i took it was that it was just like a different type of fear because humans had such a short amount of time and death could come at Mm -hmm. any moment rather than like as Apollo you know you have time because you are currently being worshipped and yeah are in you're in a steady place so like you will you will see your death coming if you die as a god Mm. while as a human it could be around any corner and will be soon 
He's also kind of detached from reality in a sense of, like, it doesn't even occur to him that, like, he could be in an actual bad situation in -hmm. terms of, like, he's sitting there and he's like, there's no reason I'm not still super hot and, like, super strong and have all these powers. I'm just mortal now. This chapter is very much in the mindset of humbling this man as quickly as possible. (laughs) A lot of this... uh... I mean, maybe maybe it's too early to bring this up, but <laughs> I think a part of this is one of the largest themes that this book series has, which is what it means to be immortal versus what it means to be mortal. And he's just yeah. immediately hit with that with like actually experiencing bodily sensations for the first time in his mm-hmm. life. And slowly over the course of the beginning of this book, starting to realize that like being mortal means being able to die and that he's trapped within one body and that it's just the start of that for him. It is something I want to track, though, with the mortality and mortality thing. The conversation that we had in our PJO wrap-up, because mm. we talked about how, in at least the first series, immortality is treated as, like, a state in which you can't change. And that whatever form you take when you're immortal, you're just stuck that way for forever. And then being mm. mortal is the only way that you can, like, achieve some kind of change in your life. And that the way that you achieved immortality was through storytelling. And I think his mindset does reflect this. Like, even though he's talking about the fact that, like, like changing shape and stuff is something very godly, like, you could be whatever you want, the mindset itself is really fixed. Like, he's never had to really learn or grow, mm-hmm. aside from maybe a couple sins of being mortal. But, and he's always had a, had a fixed identity in that, like, he's always this super hot god, he's always this, like, super talented, super strong being, like, no matter what form he takes. Mm-hmm. Like, the underlying personality, the underlying godliness is always there, no matter what, like, form. And so it doesn't matter, like, the form is just, like, a costume, basically. And it's also in, I mean, I don't think it comes up in this scene, but it comes up in later scenes, the way that he approaches um, time. Because mm-hmm. there are multiple references, not just from Apollo, yeah. th- about, like, immortals who will go off somewhere for, like, an entire century and not even realize it and so it's like it's hard to Mm -hmm. change over time when you don't even notice time passing half the time yeah which is interesting as well given that like you know they do shift in terms of place and there we have like seen before that their identities do shift um as they as the west shifts but i feel like it's almost like they don't even realize that they have shifted it's like the same underlying core yeah and it's also with apollo specifically he talks a little bit toward the end of the book i'm jumping all over the place (laughs) he talks a little bit at the end of the book about how as a god he's never had to choose one thing that he's going to represent like he has Mm -hmm. you know 10 different things that he's the god of and he just kind of switches up switches it up whenever he wants so it's like whatever change he might make he doesn't have to commit to it at all like he's never had to commit to making a change in himself because he just you know he'll he'll try being the god of medicine and then you know decide he's going to be the god of the sun one day and then be the god of music and poetry and he's never had to commit in his life although and also in light of what you mentioned about his first first line in titan's curse i do think it's interesting that here he's starting off seeing Meg and immediately thinking it must be Artemis like coming to rescue him basically yeah I liked that his his first line was little sister because I was like your little sister is gonna show up right now your little sister Meg I just think it's so cute too where he he sees Meg and he even like in the narrative is like I she looks nothing like my sister except for the fact that my sister sometimes mostly appears as like a 12 year old 
So he deceives a 12-year-old girl who looks nothing like his sister, has nothing resembling anything his sister has. And he's like, my sister's come. (laughs) So Meg's first line in contrast is, hey, my alley, my rules. Whatever that loser has is mine, including his money. Which is true. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, though, Meg McCaffrey shows up and is iconic from day one. And I don't think anybody else would do for a companion of Apollo. He can't have a non-iconic partner in crime. (laughs) So uh, Meg rescues Apollo by attacking his attackers with uh, rotten fruit. And he explains to her that this has happened to him twice in the past, that he's been made mortal by Zeus as punishment. And that usually he basically just has to serve a mortal, usually a demigod, for about a year until Zeus decides that his, his punishment has been served. And he's decided that the the mortal that he's going to serve is Percy Jackson. No hesitance, no debate. He's just like, all right, well, where is Percy yeah, Jackson? Yeah, <laughs> I know a guy. <laughs> he definitely won't make me do anything stupid. He loves me. <laughs> but upon hearing this story, Meg immediately claims Apollo's service. And now he's tied to her and has to do anything she commands for the rest of the series. Which is great. Her Raleigh, her rules. So he and Meg make their way up to the Upper East Side. And they can't remember the address. They're searching for a while until they finally encounter Prius with hoof prints on the front. It turns out we never buffed them out and Rachel never paid to get that car fixed. Wow. Unbelievable. (laughs) Rude, Rachel, honestly. Rich people. And they buzz out to the Jackson apartment, finally get let up, and Percy just opens the door and says, why? Iconic of him, (laughs) really. (laughs) After Chalice of the Gods, it makes so much sense why he answers the door like that. (laughs) Like, I I have to assume he just spent the last couple months with, like, three separate gods appearing to him and forcing him onto these quests so that he can get recommend- recommendation letters. Mm. And, like, he thinks it's over. And, he you know, he thinks, I've gotten all my letters, I've been accepted into the university. Like, I did all of the extra stupid quests that I was so mad about having to do to make up for existing. This doesn't have to be my life anymore. And then Apollo rings his doorbell. <laughs> I also, this scene was interesting coming out at, after Chalice of the Gods for me because it did feel, like, especially considering how Apollo is in the midst of the scene or, like, right before, is con- is thinking about how little he considers mortal time because, like, in his words, basically, um, it's something like, once you've been along, or, or, or once you've been alive for how many, however many thousands of years, like, time just feels different. And... It was interesting to me because that's, like, one of the things, like, Ganymede talks about when he first comes to Percy. So it feels, like, almost like we're getting Mm -hmm. that Ganymede interaction here, but, like, from the god's perspective instead of from Percy's perspective. Yeah. So I enjoyed that little, like, callback moment. For me, the other thing that really struck me about the scene is how much Apollo refers to, like, oh, don't you want to win your immortal fame? Don't you want your glory? Like, he uses the word, the phrase immortal fame, which is Mm -hmm. my buzzword. Which is like the literal translation of like the Kleos Aptiton that I was talking about in our first episode, right? Undying glory. And I felt like the way Apollo talks about that is so in contrast with the way Percy's attitude is, which we're like seeing happen in Chalice of the Gods as well, where he's like, I don't care, man. I just want to go to school and be normal. Yeah, it's just so not something that Percy wants, which we we talked a lot about in our like early original series episodes. Mm. Like, that, that one scene where Luke is, like, trying to tempt them all but doesn't know how to tempt Percy in Sea of Monsters. And it's sort of that same, like, you know, out of touch with wanting to just relax and to be with the people you care about. 
and live a normal life. I think we could talk a little bit about uh, where Percy's at in this scene, even though that'll probably change a little bit. Yeah. Um, when we get to get the other two books that take place between Chalice of the Gods and this book. Right now, he seems like he's made some peace with things and has set some hard boundaries. Yeah. He's very clearly trying to pull away and live as normal a life as he can. You can kind of feel him distancing himself from the mythological world a little bit, even though he's not totally by going to school in New Rome. You know, he hasn't been in touch with camp in a, in long enough that he doesn't know anything that's going on at camp at the at the moment. Mm-hmm. Which there's a lot of stuff going on at the moment. <laughs> but Chiron says, like, oh, he's wrapped up in his own world and I'm going to let him stay wrapped up in his own world. And so you can feel him trying to shift himself away, especially because he refuses to help Apollo. I always, I thought that this was going to be the last time that we saw Percy when I first read this book, because I figured, you know, he won't come back in any, all of the other books are going to be dedicated to a different cameo, and this is going to be Percy's, and this is, it's going to be the end of his story, and that it would be, you know, the last time that we saw him was him saying no to the gods, finally, you know, through with being used, just denying them, and walking away, Hmm. which, if it is the end of his story, works. I think so. It also ends in this kind of full circle moment as well, where he's like the one that's driving them to Long Island, that's like taking the new demigods to Camp Half-Blood and Mm -hmm. then not crossing the border and turning around. Yeah. Like it felt very much like a callback to those first few chapters of Lightning Thief with Sally, Mm -hmm. dropping him off there and then being pursued by monsters. So Sally convinces Percy to help Apollo uh, for the moment. And get him bandaged up and cleaned up, um, which Percy barely does. <laughs> he just gives Apollo some bandages and some of his clothes to wear and gives him the bathroom and is like, okay, figure it out. I did love that Apollo like looks thinks that he gave him a joke t-shirt on purpose. I, I believe it. I believe <laughs> that Percy did that on purpose. <laughs> Percy has that level of petty. Also, very quick note. This, this is actually related to what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode. Sally's pre-pregnancy clothes should apparently fit Meg, which either means Meg is a giant child or Sally is small enough for her clothes to fit a child. Either way, I've got some kind of representation here as someone who was a very tall child (laughs) (laughs) and am now a very small adult. Um, I'm going to go with it's both. Meg is five feet tall and Sally is also five feet tall. (laughs) Yeah, I see it for Meg. Meg's like a powerhouse, you know? Like, she's got to be big. Yeah, she has giant child energy. (laughs) Yeah. She's got to be like my brother Matthew, who was just, like, a monster. Although he went from giant child to giant adult, so. I wish. That was my dream. (laughs) We also have an interesting piece of information here, where Apollo has been mentioning the other two times he was turned mortal. One of which was with Poseidon, because they tried to mount a rebellion against Zeus. Yeah. Interesting to just kind of drop that right at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Just just want to hold on to that for a little while. <laughs> yeah, just, 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 yeah, we'll just, we'll just take that and we'll just tuck it in. Tuck it under a pin. Mm-hmm. The biggest pin you have, stick that one in. <laughs> I did have one other interesting observation, which is Percy, upon realizing Meg is a demigod, jokes around like, oh, like, can you summon lightning or make toilets explode when they're talking about like demigod powers? And I thought it was interesting because those two examples would be him and Thalia. So part of me was like, does Percy sense she's got like big three power? Because Demeter is mm. one of the eldest gods. She is Zeus's sister. Yeah. I just thought that was a fun little detail. Although they comment later that a lot of the Demeter kids like aren't powerful. Which... Yeah, it's like a specifically a Meg thing. 
Yeah, which I don't know. We'll, we'll get to that later. <laughs> it's another sure. one of those. <laughs> but then we have this moment of Apollo coming back out of the bathroom and seeing Percy just staring at the blood that Apollo left on the floor. He's thinking about the last time he had a nosebleed. That was the most striking moment in these couple chapters to me. Like Apollo coming out of the bathroom and seeing Percy just staring at the blood on the floor. And it's like, how long have you been sitting there? Yeah. Rereading it this time, I was thinking about how it's kind of a moment of Percy going from reluctantly helping Apollo to like by the time that Apollo comes out of the bathroom seems like he has been able to sort of like connect himself with Apollo because he's sitting there with the shower going in the other room looking at the blood on the floor and thinking about this moment where he and Apollo kind of shared like a life altering moment on the Acropolis where Percy raised Gaia and Apollo was punished by Zeus and both then had to face consequences for things that were only really like marginally their fault. Mm -hmm. And then when he talks to Apollo and hears that Apollo's also lost like huge chunks of his memories too, he's able to sort of like see himself and what Apollo was going through right now. Yeah, I think like what I was thinking about is sort of almost an extension of that where I was thinking about it more like he doesn't want to help Apollo the god, but Apollo is not a god right now. And like the blood is kind of like the ultimate evidence of that. Mm-hmm. I think to that point as well, like Apollo is bleeding because he also like got a bloody nose, got punched in the nose or whatever. And like this, it's the same thing that happened to Percy on the Acropolis. Like I think what makes the gods gods is they're not willing to be vulnerable and they aren't vulnerable. And that's sort of, like, direct evidence that this is something different. This isn't just, like, a god coming up to Percy and asking him for one more thing. It's like Apollo is, like, one of them now, kind of. Yeah, that's a good point. So Percy decides to help Apollo. Um, He drives Apollo and Meg to camp, uh, but they are pursued by plague spirits. We do get one of my favorite jokes in this whole book, which is when Meg is, like, there are these, like, floating blobs that are following us. They're sort of, like, floaty and blobby. And he's like, solemnly, like, those are the worst kind. (laughs) That's so stupid. (laughs) I think that to me is like what separates Apollo's voice from Percy's voice. Is like, he's very earnest in the way he, he like takes things at face value in a very humorous way. Yeah, this, this line is said by Percy. But yes, I mean, in terms of like narration, yes. He kind of like, yes, ands the world (laughs) it's almost like his vast experience has given him the opposite of cynicism Mm -hmm. which i really enjoy like he's just a a deeply uncynical but also deeply narcissistic character it makes for a great combo it does and we also see him he's like already starting to have the trickles of like these little like realizations that i think become central to a lot of his arc because i think something that is interesting about apollo in this book is it's like it almost doesn't occur to him to have sympathy or empathy for anyone. But as soon as the thought enters his mind, he starts to make the connections. There's It doesn't seem like there's anything in Apollo that's like inherently against caring about people in the way that some mm. other gods, uh, that might be their instinct. It's like he's, yeah. he's extremely self-centered. But when he realizes that there are other people around him, it's not like his immediate instinct is to push them aside. There are people that he's cared about in his life. And it clearly, it comes to him more naturally. Like the fact that he, by the end of this book, is at a point where he really cares about Meg shows that that's not an instinct that's new to him completely. It's in the scene though, where after Percy leaves them, he says, 
It occurred to me that if he was a god and I was a worshiper, he would expect gratitude. (laughs) That's when he starts to be like, oh, thank you. And he's not like, it's not like he's resistant to showing thanks or appreciation. It just like has never occurred to him. Right. Versus other gods you can definitely see being a lot more like unwilling to show any kind of grace. See Zeus. Right. Yeah, if this had happened to Zeus, it would be a much different situation. <laughs> be so, everyone would be smote. I don't know how he'd do it without his powers, but he'd figure out a way. <laughs> he'd figure out a way. He'd be plotting revenge. So they are able to make it to Camp Half-Blood. Percy kind of has to do the adult thing and deal with like police officers and tickets and all that fun stuff. Mm-hmm. I didn't notice it uh, at the time, but I realized later on that this like entering camp, like crossing the threshold into camp, ended up being like it marks a a total shift from past books because we will not leave camp after that because in my mm-hmm. head when i think about percy jackson books and the formula of percy jackson books it's we start you know the first however many 60 pages are the pre-camp portion of the book and then we get to the camp portion of the book which is usually like 100 pages long and then we leave on the quest mm-hmm. but in this book it felt like we were in a perpetual right before the quest and stuck at camp moment. <laughs> yeah, which is interesting. It really makes, it feels, this book, like it makes you almost feel like out of time in an interesting way because you keep, you're like waiting for them to leave. Mm-hmm. Even when the like climactic events are happening. Yeah, and like when the climactic events are happening, there's still those moments where they're like, you're like, oh, so this is the quest. And then it's like, no. And it grabs Apollo and drags him back to camp to talk to Nico yeah. or Will and then go back into the woods. It definitely, it, it frames, I think I'm expecting at least it to frame the, the rest of the series as, you know, this first book was those first 160 yeah. pages of a Percy Jackson book. And the rest is going to be the rest of the Percy Jackson book. <laughs> Which means I have to reframe the way that I think about the series instead of like, oh, it's a five book series, five act structure, which I'm going to keep obviously holding on to that. But there's this other structure, which is the Percy Jackson book. Hmm. Yeah. There are a lot of moments in this book also that you can feel past books that we've read weighing on. The whole book feel- has a little bit of like a ghost town vibe. You know, camp is emptier. There are only, I think he's, he says an exact number at one point, but I can't remember if it was 12 or 18. <laughs> it might not even be yeah. either of those numbers. But camp is much emptier. There's that one moment later on where we pass through the arena very briefly while in the labyrinth mm-hmm. yeah and then there's like when rachel shows up she's gaunt and pale and her cave lacks all of the warmth that she like built into it and it just like everything feels more dead mr d also is like an intro there's a mystery introduced to like where in the world is mr d like he's not back and Chiron is like hoping that like apollo will know something about that and he's like nope yeah there's no mr d there's no Percy or Annabeth or the Lost Trio, the, the Lost Trio, the Lost Hero Trio. I'll call them the Lost Trio, yeah. though. That's cute. <laughs> yeah, there's no Romans in this either. Yeah, and like Apollo is actively looking for them. He's like, where are the main characters? And they're like, unfortunately, it's you. <laughs> like, he, like, that is literally how he talks about it, though. He's like sitting around like, I don't see the main characters here. Where's the A-list ones? Why am I getting the randos? <laughs> And even, like, Percy, like, he's in this book, but is he? You know, he doesn't do any Percy things. He's just like, all right, I'm an adult now. 
I have to take the D stomp. I was like, what does that entail? I'm so curious about the D stomp. <laughs> well, there's apparently a poetry analysis section. Right? <laughs> Honestly, part of me, when he, when he was talking about that, I was just thinking about, like, the Olympics were not the only games in the ancient world. There were plenty of other games in plenty of other places. The Olympics were just, like, the biggest ones with the most prestige. But mm. there's also the Delphic games, which are, like, the second biggest that were also every four years, but, like, alternating. So it's kind of like the Winter Olympics versus the Summer Olympics. So I was thinking, like, maybe that's kind of what it's based on, is, like, all the things you'd have to do, like, the feats of athleticism and, like, also, though, poetry and lyre playing were a part of it. And actually, the year that Nero was, like, I want to be in the Olympics. And they were like, Nero, you can't be in the Olympics. The Olympics just happened last year. He was like, no, they didn't. They're going to happen this year, too. Also, I heard that, like, the Delphic Games, they have, like, poetry reading and lyre playing is, you know, events. And they're like, they certainly do that. Yes, for Apollo. And he's like, great, so do the Olympics. <laughs> and they were like, okay, I guess they do. But I'm imagining that. Right. Uh, speaking of which, I enjoy for that, among many reasons, that Nero is the first of the triumvirate we meet in this book series. Mm. Because I do think he not only styled himself a lot like Apollo in his life, but I do think on a personality basis, Apollo is kind of, as a character, the most like Nero, yeah. at least in the opening, like the god Apollo. So, at camp, we learn a, a couple of things have been going on. One is that campers have been going missing recently. They just disappear from their beds in the middle of the night and no one's sure why. And also all forms of communication have been cut off for demigods. And even people associated with demigods haven't been able to make phone calls, haven't been able to send emails. No iris messages. No iris messages. They've managed to receive a message from Leo letting them know that he's alive. But that's because it, like, blew in on the wind somehow, a scroll. But other than that, they haven't been able to really contact anybody. And so these are the things that Percy is unaware of, somehow. You'd mm -hmm. think his mom wouldn't mention not being able to make a phone call, maybe. But <laughs> He's just been, like, really studying. I, You know, he's just working, been working so hard. <laughs> and while Sally's like, I can't get a hold of my doctor for some reason. <laughs> But we also got Apollo uh, interacting with his children. Yeah. And it, his relationship with his children is, I think it's interesting because it's sort of like the way he describes where it feels like all of his past like deeds and loves are like n not things that he did. Like he doesn't have like a memory of him being an active participant in them. They're just kind of like these things that like feel like they happened to someone else. Hmm. And I think, like, he realizes on a intellectual level that these are his kids. And he, like, remembers their parents. And he, he actually reminisces about their parents when he sees them. And, like, he clearly, like, remembers each encounter. Like, he's not, you know, a guy who just, like, had an affair and then never thought of, you know, the affair partner again type situation. But he's not quite a peer. But he's also not really, he's, he really isn't their parent in this either. Yeah. I think the one who takes to it, like, easiest... Uh, I guess I feel like Austin and Will both kind of are able to form a relationship with Apollo. I do think he and Will have an interesting relationship as well because so one of the things he mentions he wants to figure out at camp is which of his godly powers he's retained because he sort of got this in his head. He's like, yes, I obviously have retained godly powers of mine, mm -hmm. but it's clear pretty quickly that healing is not one of them. And so Will is really the like healer of camp. And it's sort of like everyone kind of defers to his authority in that respect, including Apollo. Mm -hmm. And archery, too. Which one is it that's really good at archery? 
Kayla, I think. Kayla. That's her name. I think he says he gets one bullseye, which still is impressive, but he, like, is so upset that he gives up on ever using his powers again. Uh, I think the only thing that he's retained is, like, some musical ability. Because he's able to perform so beautifully that all of the people that he's with start crying. Yeah, like, I think that's the true godly power. Because he's literally tuning his guitar and everyone's just, like, under a clear, like, extremely powerful magic. Like, much more powerful than any demigod, I think. Yeah, which I think we learn over time it's not just the power of music. It seems like it's a little bit the power of storytelling, um, Mm, in my mind, because of the most effective songs that he sings later on, especially are the ones where he's putting his own story into it and is telling, like, as, as honestly as he can what's happened to him. Those ones have, like, a special sort of power in them. Yeah. One thing that struck me in this book was how quickly taking oaths came to Apollo as a character. Mm. It's like whenever he has a thought about like how he wants to behave going forward, he makes an oath. Um, in my head, I assumed that, you know, when gods mean something, like the only thing that'll keep them to their word is like making a, an unbreakable oath. Like that's the only way that mm. anyone's going to believe them when you're a god, mm. talking to like other gods that that might be a part of why Apollo throws them around because <laughs> yeah. this is like a reckless one <laughs> and it's so against like what like you know in the past like prior to this he was also like so gung-ho about figuring out what his godly abilities were and like clinging to that aspect of his godliness and even when he discovers them he's like nope and he doesn't even think through the consequences Although part of him also might just be like, what consequences? I'm never leaving this camp for safety. I'm not doing anything. I'm going to make other people do it for me. Yeah. He's not thinking ahead. He's not at all. Like, it doesn't matter. Which is ironic, considering he's the god of prophecy. And I think it's also in this uh, first scene at uh, the pavilion, the dining pavilion, where they're all sitting together as peers. He has his first fatherly realization. And again, I think it's in the context of his relationship with Zeus here. But he thinks to himself that a father should give more to his children than he takes. And he's immediately like, oh, that's a new thought. (laughs) And I feel like it's almost like he doesn't think of himself as a father. Mm-hmm. He definitely thinks of himself as a son and of Zeus as his father, but he is not the father of his children. <laughs> no, he's like, those just kind of happen. There's also an interesting detail where one of the demigods is Portuguese and speaking Portuguese, and Chiron can't understand Portuguese despite the fact that Portuguese is a romance language. That's what I kept thinking. I was like, Apollo understands Italian perfectly. And then here's Portuguese, and he's like, what is going on? <laughs> like, I can understand Portuguese because I speak Spanish. Like, <laughs> <laughs> The theme of this book is Chiron is fucking useless. <laughs> like, genuinely. He really was in this book. He only made things harder. <laughs> he was, like, maliciously useless in this book. Chiron's up to something. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I swear, there's, like, something going on here. There's something happening. <laughs> So they've been exploring the labyrinth, the the newly reimagined labyrinth. Which they're saying feels less evil than the old one. But, like, comparing Daedalus to Pasiphae makes me question that. Yeah, Austin says it feels less evil now, which it surprised me because it felt like it was more, like, malicious in Heroes of Olympus because it was now Pasiphae's labyrinth instead of Daedalus's. Like, I expected it to be more spiteful. And I think we see that, too. Yeah. Like, this this comes up a little bit later on. I don't know if we want to answer ex- our, our wonderings immediately, but we actually get an answer to this later. So Apollo 
Ever since seeing one of the campers starting to drift toward the forest without thinking, after thinking a question to themselves, thinks that he's started to figure out why campers have been going missing, but Kyron won't listen mm-hmm. to him. And so they uh, start this three-legged race. And so they're all dropped into the labyrinth before Apollo can give us any answers. And the labyrinth ends up leading them, uh, Meg and Apollo, directly to Python, who we learned in Blood of Olympus has taken over Delphi. And the labyrinth ends up leading them directly under his cave, which is where Python is currently meeting with the beast from over the garden wall. And this is the moment where Apollo thinks to himself that uh, Austin was wrong about the maze and that it was still evil, designed to kill. It was just a little subtler about its homicides now, um, because he says that the labyrinth leads you now where you least want to be, in contrast to Mm. what we decided the labyrinth did last time, which was it led you where the labyrinth thought you needed to be. Yeah, although I don't know. I would say that, like, where you least want to be could be where you need to be. Like, those two things could be true. Yes, but the labyrinth's main purpose we kind of talked about in Battle of the Labyrinth was to lead you to, like, realizations about your life and yourself and everything, and that's not Mm. necessarily what the labyrinth is doing now under past phase control. Yeah. But Apollo guesses that it's to lead you where you least want to be, which I also don't believe. (laughs) I don't think he's right. I think we need to come up with a new reason that the labyrinth is here, but we might have to do that in a later book where the labyrinth is relevant again. Yeah. I think the labyrinth in the first series is chaotic good. Yeah. This one, I don't know, but worse than that. (laughs) They end up also, um, as they're kind of fleeing that, in Antaeus's arena. I mean, what you, we were talking about in our Bowed Labyrinth episode was it represents on Luke's end, like you feeding and feeding an ancient force and it's never going to be enough. And then I think on Percy's end, what did we decide? Per- it, w- it was the reason why Percy had to go through the arena? To see Antaeus and see a, a, a son of Poseidon who wasn't all good. Yeah. Although interestingly, like, it was also sort of this idea that Percy and Luke were each other's minotaurs. And I think Apollo is coming from his minotaur mm-hmm. <laughs> encounter in the labyrinth. Yeah. So it's like going through the field of Minotaur's past. Mm. Like, who's the monster in the labyrinth? You know, are we are we bringing that idea back to you? Like, the map labyrinth needs a monster? Right. But it doesn't seem like Python is the monster in the labyrinth. He's above the labyrinth. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that we, we need to come back to that question. Who's the monster yeah. now? In the Burning Maze, Maybe. probably. Going off the title. <laughs> yeah, I remember that one scene in the Burning Maze, and that's it. Chapter 33 and chapter 34 are burned into my brain. The rest of the book? Don't know what happens. Couldn't tell you. (laughs) So they collect their apples finally and exit the labyrinth. But then they find out that the other two Apollo kids have now also gone missing. And Apollo is absolutely furious. And he wants to blame somebody and anybody. But then he kind of realizes that he can't. That he has to just fix it. Which I thought was an interesting departure from the way his father reacted to the Mm. same emotions. Which started off this series. So, again, you see this, like, departure from him and Zeus that's, I think, been pretty consistent in the book, but it's definitely, like, building in intensity. So, after the race, Apollo finally gets Meg to tell him a little bit about the beast, and she tells him that the beast snatches kids off the street, basically, and uses them as servants, um, like young demigods. Or from the woods. Sorry, I was trying to continue the Over the Garden Wall reference, but... Right. 
snatches kids from the woods and turns them into giant trees. Well, well, <laughs> <laughs> you're not wrong here. <laughs> he literally does that. <laughs> and after confessing this, uh, they hear a helicopter coming in, and it is Rachel Elizabeth Dare uh, returning to camp. We all applaud, and I I love this scene that plays out with Rachel. Like my heart was pounding reading this, mm. as if I didn't already know everything that she was revealing to us. I was like, I I can't believe it, Rachel. <laughs> Rachel shows up and takes them into her cave and explains what she's been up to. And she reveals that there's a company based in New York that is massive and no one knows who owns it. Like all she has is a blurry picture of these three men who own the company um, and no one can identify them. But she knows that this company, it's, it's called Triumvirate Holdings. It funded the Roman army and it funded Luke's army. Like both of those wars were fun- were financed by the same company. I this revelation that it's all connected and it's like been the same people trying to take down the gods over and over and that they've been around for centuries and that it's like this enormous mm-hmm. company. It's just so it's so good. I love this. <laughs> yeah, it's really awesome. There's even like it begins with her journey basically being like I was trying to figure out how the Romans had set up like a base in Manhattan so quickly like how did they get these resources how did they mm-hmm. do it and then we also see Meg she recognizes the building yeah it was all there in Sea of Monsters Luke literally said that he had rich benefactors and everyone ignored him I know <laughs> he said it very clearly he did and like you re- you look back at the stuff that Rachel's pointing out like the fact that they had a cruise ship that they own and the fact that they had you know helicopters and tons of mortal mercenaries and it's just it's like duh of course they had money coming from somewhere i just love how it ties all three series together and like reframes both the the titan war and the war with the romans and this is just the start of it this is the start of the revelation there's more <laughs> but it comes later yeah but also in the scene we start talking about oracles and prophecies and start reframing that and the way that we've been looking at that also which I want to talk about because I want to work through what this means (laughs) because the conversation that happens here they explain that by taking an oracle you then essentially control the future and that without an oracle and without prophecies there just isn't a future at all the way they explain this is that the the future is determined when you're offered a prophecy and like I in my head it was like even even if it has multiple outcomes those outcomes aren't possible without an oracle giving them to you I think he actually specifically says something like without a prophecy you can't see or direct your fate Mm. which I found an interesting line the idea that hearing a prophecy is actually like its own form of agency because once a prophecy is spoken, from there you can direct your fate somehow. The prophecy is spoken, and so now there are a number of paths that like suddenly crop up in that moment. So you can take one of those paths now, but without that prophecy, those paths wouldn't exist, and so nothing would ever happen. But then I was like, well, how do the fates work into this? <laughs> because obviously things are destined to happen in this world, because the fates decide them, and it, the fates exist. Yeah, I actually, hold on. There's a really interesting, okay. I actually just skimmed a passage in my linguistics book, in one of my linguistics textbooks, that feels relevant. Okay. 
So it's basically talking about how linguistics is cool because you can solve like certain mysteries with it that are really interesting. And how you basically can't take certain things that might seem like an obvious origin of a word at face value. But the one of the two examples it gave was actually the Greek word prophetes for prophet. Probably it's a combo of the Greek word phetes, which is sayer, like speaker, preceded by the prefix pro, which means either before or like henceforth, but forward. And there's uh, a question of, okay, so does it mean that it comes from one who says things before they happen, right? One who foretells. Or does that mean one who announces? Hmm. And there's a verb prophemi, which means to speak before, like foretell. And so you might jump to the conclusion that that means that the noun comes from the verb. But the noun prophetes appears... 700 years before the verb, which means it can't have come from the verb foretell. And then also, further than that, the pro meaning before is actually a much more recent meaning for that prefix. Mm. So it actually means that the origin of the word prophet doesn't mean someone who speaks something before it happens, but someone who basically speaks it into truth. And I can kind of see that idea being played with here. You think that prophecies are somebody who foretells something, but actually what they are, someone who speaks things into existence. Which I think also explains why there's so much perceived power behind prophecy. I also have another really interesting book about the Oracle of Delphi specifically and about how much, how a extremely patriarchal society like ancient Greece held a female oracle in such renown and gave so much power to it. People gave gifts of extraordinary magnitude to the Oracle of Delphi and held the Oracle of Delphi in extreme high esteem and like it, it carried it a significant amount of power. It still carries a lot of power like just from the like that memory of it essentially. Like the Oracle of Delphi also essentially shaped and guided a lot of outcomes of historical battles because a lot of people would go to the oracle. It creates an interesting opportunity where an oracle can potentially create a fate and thus circumvent fate. Mm. I feel like that's sort of the direction at least the triumvirate are moving in. Yeah, okay. This makes sense to me because now I'm thinking about it and like in my head, the oracle has basically just been looking into the future and telling you about it. But now I'm like, I'm thinking back on the fact that Percy's fate wasn't determined by the fates until after the first series like we saw them looking into his eyes and like deciding his fate at the very end of the series but he still had Mm. like a prophecy that he was assigned and so Mm. by speaking that prophecy it like spoke that into existence and it wasn't something that had to do with fate or anything it was its own like thing so prophecy and the fates have have nothing to do with each other it's it kind of really brings into this thing of like how belief plays into it In a society in which oracles and prophecy are held to the highest standard, it's like, you know, as we were kind of observing, it's like the world is going to make itself rearrange in a way where it's going to come true and there's multiple ways it could come true. I think it's interesting to examine the heroes of Olympus under this lens as well, where the characters are all trying to kind of figure out what the prophecy means. And in that, because they're figuring out what the prophecy means, they're kind of reshaping their realities and their actions in order to make the prophecy fit in a way that they find more favorable. Like, the, all of the different ways they're trying to reinterpret. To storm or fire, the world must fall, or, like, you know, oath to keep with final breath. 
that particular prophecy was so vague. Mm. <laughs> it could have been so many things, and there could have been so many different outcomes. And part of me is like, I wonder if they all just OP'd their... The way I'm going to decide to analyze it, I think, is what if they all just OP'd their way out of the outcome that was clearly supposed to happen because they found a way to make the prophecy work for a different outcome. Mm. There is some evidence that the oracles were also created for different purposes, and they had, like, different audiences and people that would come. So I was doing some research, and a lot of people think because of what we found evidence of at the Oracle of Dodona that it, people came to the Oracle of Dodona for much more personal problems than they would come to for, like, Delphi, for example. Well, while we're talking about Dodona, this is also the scene where we learn more about it, if you want to expand more. <laughs> Yeah, fun fact, Phoebe convinced me to read this series because I was talking about how much I loved all the, how cool all the different Greek oracles were. And she was like, yeah, I know about those from Percy Jackson. And I was like, what? And then I was like, no, but they don't do like the bet, my favorite oracle, which is the Oracle of Trophonius. And she was like, yeah, they do. It's book two. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, I guess I have to read the Trials of Apollo. But um, basically the Oracle of Dodona in the ancient world, like I mentioned, is kind of more personal stuff but it is the oldest um we think it dates back to like 2000 bc it was originally probably a local oracle to what we think was like the great mother possibly like rhea possibly other goddesses and eventually was kind of co-opted as an oracle of zeus speaking who leaves so that is what has appeared in the woods at camp Half-Blood. And that Apollo theorizes has been luring all of these missing kids into the woods in the middle of the night. That they are, you know, thinking questions to themselves and that the oracle is calling to them out in the woods with answers. So now that they know where the kids have ended up, or at least they think they know where the kids have ended up, Apollo and Meg decide that they're going to go into the woods and try and find the grove. While also suspecting that Triumvirate Holdings and whoever that guy was, the beast who we heard talking Mm. to Python, that they are also trying to get their hands on the grove. So So we go into the woods. Yeah, they head into the woods. You get a fun throwback where we see a mermaid corpse. Yeah, immediately just stumble upon the corpse of one of those big ants. (laughs) And he does reference seeing them fighting a Greek army in, uh, was it India or Pakistan, he says? Oh, I can't remember. He's like, I saw them fight a Greek army. So they did eventually, they were, they were where Herodotus said they were. Yeah. And then he had a line that I, I just kind of stopped me for a moment. I also wrote this one down. The one where he, (laughs) he reminds himself that he's no longer a spectator, that one. Yeah. But I thought that that transformation from spectator to participant and like from audience member to now being involved in the action and being complicit in some way. I mainly thought about it in a in a meta sense. I wondered if throughout these books we'll be brought closer to the danger in a way like us as audience members are going to be involved more, especially because Apollo is much more explicitly talking to us as an audience mm. than we've been talked to in previous books. And like if being closer to the danger, because already the danger feels more real in these books, like two satyrs, I think, go to get Rachel, like go to get yeah. Rachel to come and they both die. Yeah, it feels like we're kind of almost returning to Percy Jackson's, like, a Percy Jackson era, like, humor and voice to the writing, but also I think the escalation of stakes 
like I feel like the stakes were escalated a lot in Heroes of Olympus like they kind of transcended middle grade and turned more into YA for me but like at the same time you know we didn't actually get a lot of real life consequences like we did in the first series Uh but this feels like kind of a mix of that where we're actually getting the more adult consequences you know like and again because like in the original books like there were plenty of bad things that happened to characters and but they were written for 12 year olds versus here it's we're expecting to be we're expecting to be a little older and able to handle a little bit more detail that's kind of what i was thinking with you know like the fact that paolo keeps losing his limbs we have all of these references to like oh well don't get maimed out there in the woods but like it's not like we actually see any of that and then in this book we actually see that and so danger feels more real here and like things Mm. just generally feel like some of that uh i think i've i don't know if i've spoken about it here but about the way that percy is able to filter all of the things that he sees and so like you know what he's seeing is probably this level of danger but then through his narration he's able to just kind of guard his audience from that Mm. and apollo his narration isn't guarding you from that and so you get to actually see the realities in ways that you don't as much in the original series yeah and it it feels intentional too because he there's a line earlier in the book where He's talking about how all of these people expect him to, like, slay all these monsters without even breaking a sweat. Because in the original story of him slaying Python, that's the way he told it. Yeah. But he he says, like, why did they believe me, basically? Like, of course that wasn't what happened. Yeah. And he talks about, like, his story being wrong on Wikipedia. And there was something else that he mentioned that was, like, oh, it was Daphne's story. And flaying the satyr alive. That was the other one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, and it feels like here, he talks a lot about how he's not a god, and it's not this. he's not this perfect form in this story, so it feels like he's like, yeah, no, of course I'm not going to hold back in explaining all this stuff to you. Like, I'm not pretending to be perfect, because I'm Lester. Hmm. It's funny, because it's like, when he says all of that, I, I feel like Apollo in this book is very explicitly an unreliable narrator. In ways that we only were able to theorize that Percy was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Apollo, like, up front is that. But he is much more honest with us than he clearly is mm. with other people. Like, it, it does feel like he's making a real attempt to be honest. It's just that, like, his personality keeps getting in the way. And that's what mm. makes him unreliable. Is the fact that the, yeah. the way that he sees the world is just so drastically not the way that the world is. <laughs> yeah. Which will be interesting to track. I want to track his worldview and his mindset through mm-hmm. his books and how that shifts. But it's like moments like that where he's honest with you about the world that he's seeing in a way that mm. like Percy might have been like, I had to look away. You know, he he doesn't want to yeah. tell you about the things that he's seeing. And that's happened like even in, uh, it was the last Kane Chronicles short story. There was the moment where he said that what he was experiencing was so bad that he didn't want to tell you about it. When he was first possessed, he didn't, he was like, you don't want to know what that was like. Like, I'll give you a very quick explanation, but I'm not going into detail. In a way that like, I feel like Apollo would have told me everything. I think he would have given me a page long explanation of what that was like. (laughs) I've got 20 metaphors right on my sleeve. Let's do this. He and Meg pass through the Mermaid Corpse and they meet these geyser gods called Palakoi. This one geyser god is very proud of uh, his geyser. Um, And he shows off the spotlights they have put in so that you can see the geysers in all of their glory. But it turns out that that summons the giant ants. And so, unfortunately, Meg is 
captured by one of them and presumably taken back to their anthill, which Apollo doesn't really know where it is. Um, he has a general idea because he saw where the ant came from, but he, he doesn't actually know where it is. And he's also gotten a very bad concussion. And so as he's wandering through the woods, this is when he meets Rhea, yeah. the queen of the titans. And interestingly, he also mentioned that she hasn't been seen in like hundreds of years. Yeah. Which is funny because Percy saw her. This scene with Rhea is one of my favorite scenes in this whole book. This is where we learn exactly what's been going on with the triumvirate holdings and everything. Rhea explains that the three men who uh, are associated with the triumvirate holdings are three Roman emperors, the ones who have stayed in human memory because they've they've managed to, through the combination of being worshipped and remaining in human memory um, by being, you know, legendary ancient Roman emperors, they've managed to attain immortality and made themselves basically just like extremely minor gods. So like, like minor enough that they are completely reliant on their existence in human memory and like have faded in and out and been in a sort of like twilight life all this time, or at least for a while, and then were able to gain power, especially with the internet. And Wikipedia. And Wikipedia specifically is, is called out. Mm-hmm. First of all, they're a triumvirate, which is a political term that originated during the Roman Republic, and there were two triumvirates. Interestingly, they all ended, they both ended similarly, which may or may not be prophetic to how this goes, but the first triumvirate was Gaius Julius Caesar, Pompey Magnus, and the third member was this guy named Crassus, who was super rich. He had a famous quote, which was, are you even rich if you can't afford your own army? (laughs) And the way the first triumvirate ended was that Crassus actually got killed in battle against the Parthians pretty gruesomely and Gaius Julius Caesar and Pompey Magnus ended up in a civil war against each other the second triumvirate was formed by Gaius Julius Caesar's uh, he actually adopted him but he was his nephew I believe Octavian Augustus and and apparently a son of Apollo I guess sure his father is not an important or famous Roman figure but he formed the second triumvirate with Mark Antony and this guy named Lepidus Interestingly enough, the way that also ended was Lepidus, I believe, I forget what happened. No one cares about Lepidus. I don't remember what happened to him, but he he ceased to be relevant. And Mark Antony and Octavian also ended up in a massive civil war against each other. So which of them will become the Lepidus and which of them will end up in civil war against each other if they follow the patterns of the two prior triumvirates? Who's to say? I don't know how this series ends. I don't know if that happens, but I kind of hope it does because that'd be pretty cool. I feel like what's really important about this conversation with Rhea is the very offhand comments that she keeps making. (laughs) Some of my favorites include when she's explaining the existence of the emperors and she says they're tied to the course of western civilization even though that whole concept is imperialist eurocentric propaganda man (laughs) like my guru would tell you (laughs) and Apollo was like please. That was like Rhea you and me girl. (laughs) But I don't like that it's kind of played off as a joke. 
You're you're playing it off as a joke because this is a criticism people have leveled at you, Rick. I don't think that it's a joke simply because of like Rhea's vibes in this entire scene and the way that she kind of reframes a lot of this stuff. That's true. Because she also has lines like, um, while talking about the emperors, she says, I'm not going to get sucked into that patriarchal institutional oppression again. <laughs> um, and she also talks about how change takes a long time and that you have to persevere uh, to make sure that it happens. And it's just, she keeps dropping these little things into their conversation that yeah. feel like, you know, she's looking at this series from this angle that like is so different from the way that we've been told about all of it, but it's also mm. like finally giving us our full explanation, but only through this lens so that you're tying all of it to things like yeah. imperialism and patriarchy and like capitalistic billionaires <laughs> and saying that the emperors are trying to suffocate our future and divide up our world and own it. And like, mm -hmm. it's, it's this side of all of this that the original series ignored, but because it's been ignored and has been growing for centuries within Western civilization, we're now at this point. Mm. She takes the whole series and like flips it around and is like, look at what's been happening this whole mm. time. We need to make a change. Okay, I'm gonna leave now. <laughs> you do it, <laughs> Apollo. <laughs> now that you've been flipped on your head. Now that I've blown your mind. I'm gonna get out of here but like it that's what it felt like to me rather than it being like a mm. joke that he's playing off this criticism more that he's like taking it all and reframing it so that you're like oh right this is what's been going on that's true I was actually thinking it's not so much a joke as I feel like he's doing a similar thing that I did in one of my pieces where you've given a character who goes on a rampage right at the beginning of your thing that is not meant to be taken seriously necessarily, but meant to sit in the back of your brain until over the course of the story you show how right this character is. Mm -hmm. That you were kind of told by the narrative to listen to, but was also kind of played off like, you're not going to get this yet, but you will. Yeah, it's exactly that. I also think what's important to bring up about what we learn here is this new, I think it's new, this new idea of that you can become immortal through worship and human memory. Yeah, which I think we've kind of been building to. Like, I don't think this comes out of nowhere, because I think the only path to godliness we've seen is like Hercules's, where it's like the gods are, it's a gift the gods give. Yeah. So here we're kind of seeing that godliness is not even gatekept by the gods. And actually the gods have way less control over these things than we think they do. I liked the way that it interacted with what we've been talking about with immortality, with the idea of the only way for a mortal to achieve immortality is by having their story told. And it turns out that that's literally how you get immortality combined yeah. with you also have to be worshipped in some way. But I feel like getting your story told is sort of a form of worship. Yeah, which I think is how the emperors have managed to really keep it. Because yeah. like, they're not necessarily worshipped anymore, but their story has definitely stuck around. <laughs> and it's, I think this also connects to this idea of like the power of a name too that is mentioned a little later um, as a specific example of like how this works like having people remember your name in that way although which is interesting considering that for a lot of these especially roman figures what we call them today is not necessarily what they were called when they were alive 
nor is it necessarily what they were called even 100 or 200 years ago because classical scholarship has like changed a lot and moved on so much like for example cicero was used to be called tuli and his full name is marcus tullius cicero it's interesting like the power of a name has such significance in this world when that is actually one of the most changeable things in scholarship I'm also thinking now, I'm I'm remembering now that I think the next two emperors that we meet also have like a little bit of wackiness around their name and are called like three different things. And we'll probably talk more about names as we get into the other emperors since they've each got their own weird relationship to their name. So after they talk, Rhea helps Apollo out of the woods. But as soon as Apollo wakes up after passing out outside the woods, he immediately wants to go back in to find Meg. And so he hunts down the anthill. One of the ants is dragging a 1967 Chevy Impala, and that's fine. I was wondering if you were going to comment on that one. No, we don't need to talk about that. (laughs) Apollo heads into the anthill, and the way that he manages to keep the ants from attacking him is by being overly confident and singing. Breaking his oath to the river sticks. Is he, though? No, I think this time he doesn't have the ukulele. He broke the oath in the last scene. Didn't mention that. He broke his oath and immediately lost Meg. Yeah. Which is important. This time he's just singing, and what he sings about is an original song, which most of, the, most of the stuff we've seen him sing isn't original. Most of it is him taking from songs that he says he's inspired <laughs> that are basically just very famous songs by other artists. But this time he's singing about seeing Daphne's face in the trees and watching Hyacinthus be killed. And these, have, these two have come up a lot. His two like greatest loves, essentially. Mm-hmm. And their stories are different than the way they've been told. Because the story of Apollo and Daphne is Apollo boasts to Eros that he's a much better archer. And Eros shoots Apollo with a golden arrow to make him really fall in love with Daphne and shoots Daphne with a lead arrow to make sure that she will never love him back. And Apollo chases Daphne and he won't let her go until she reaches the banks of her father, who's a river god, and he turns her into a laurel tree. And Apollo, in despair, takes down the laurel leaves and he creates his crown and he takes parts of the tree and like fashions them into like his lyre his bow kind of to honor her but also to carry her with him always it's a little possessive but the way he tells it here he did love her before and that the arrows of eros play up things that are already there and he's seeming to start to really understand that it was him that caused the disaster like it was him that chose to taunt the god of love when he had found this new love and the same thing goes for the situation with hyacinthus it feels like a similar thing has happened with his oath as well in the river sticks where he's just like immediately forsworn like the powers that could help him save meg in a fit of just like over like uh, what's the word i'm looking for he's just feeling sorry for himself (laughs) yeah in a fit of his own like self-pity and so he's singing this song where he's pouring his heart out, where he's actually really starting to process and be vulnerable with all of these feelings. And you kind of get the sense that this is the first time he's ever done that. Because of the way he talks about the way he tells stories about himself before, where he's never, like, despairing. And so with his singing, he's able to rescue Meg. Right. Who's crying when she hears the song that he was singing. And she tries to explain to him why she's crying, but he cuts her off and says, like, don't worry about it. But there's clearly something that she wants to say to him that he's not letting her say. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he 
brings her to the entrance to the grove. Yeah, we can skip over the scene where he wraps out a giant ant. <laughs> yeah, we don't. We don't need to talk about that one. <laughs> and it turns out the entrance to the grove and the labyrinth is like in the anthill. So they find the entrance to the grove. And waiting for them are wrapped up on sticks all of the stolen campers and that one god and the beast. At this point, though, we're referring to him as Emperor Nero. So Nero explains that he needs Meg and Apollo to work together to open the gates of Dodona because Apollo will use his like power over the oracles and prophecy and everything while Meg will mm. use her power over the trees. Apollo tries to stand his ground with Meg, but Meg uh, isn't standing with him. <laughs> and this is when we find out that Meg has been working with Nero and is yeah. his, his stepdaughter. Because she's made references before that her her stepfather raised her, that her father was killed by the beast. And here's where we find out that the beast and Nero are one and the same. It's just that it's basically a tactic he's using to emotionally abuse her in which um, he kind of has these separate entities where if she behaves badly, he, she could summon the beast, which is just Nero. Mm-hmm. Meg, it, it seems, thinks of these two as separate, as a trauma response and this is i think where we really get to see the start of this theme in the trials of apollo books which is like i mentioned fathers and their children and also abuse and cycles of violence is crucial to this series (laughs) but it's really here that we get that fully established when apollo is completely confused about why meg is separating these two things in her like these two beings in her head but then comes to understand it by thinking about his own relationship with Zeus and that that's the kind of thing that Zeus would say of like don't get on the wrong side of my thunderbolts and like blaming it on the thunderbolts whatever he did on whatever punishments he gave Apollo so that he would associate the punishment with the thunderbolts instead of his father and that that's why he went after the cyclops who created the thunderbolts because he hated yeah. the thunderbolts more than his father but it's crazy too because that even goes so much deeper because it's that's also the next most recent time he became mortal was as punishment was when he did that mm-hmm. was when he stole zeus's lightning became the lightning thief if you will if, if you if you must <laughs> No, but seriously, because something else I thought about as well with this comparison is it brought me back to that scene, those last two scenes in The Lightning Thief that we compared where Gabe and Zeus are paralleled, where it's, again, an abusive father figure. Mm-hmm. We're, again, comparing Zeus to another overtly abusive father figure. This is when I, I feel like when I bring up themes in this series, I'm really talking about all three series because everything this series does, I feel like reframes everything that we've yeah. seen especially stuff from the first series and that's this is one of them is it it makes so much of like all three of these series about fathers and their children and abuse yeah it's like it's finally it's finally like yes we're gonna talk about it that thing that i've been tap dancing around this whole that's how i feel when i read this book i'm like thank god we're talking about it like every other page (laughs) but this is only the beginning of that theme in this series this is like you know this is the end of the book and Apollo is starting to realize this or like I don't even think he's fully realizing what he just thought about his dad it's like again one of those moments where he's like I should have empathy and then reaches for a connection yeah he's using his own experiences to try and understand what's going on with Meg not realizing that what he's just realized is going on with Meg is 
absolutely something that's been going on with him all this time. Yeah, like he's thinking about it as as far as an isolated incident, and he's not even making the connection of like, oh, that's the last time I was made mortal was this, and it was also like the la- the time before that was when I had an uprising against my father, and now it's happening for the third time. Three times the charm. Three is a magic number. Yeah, and we're seeing you know throughout the book we're seeing plenty of resentment directed toward. Zeus, but there's none of this like directly calling out Zeus as an abusive father. It's like, it feels like he's thinking about what Zeus did as a petty act. Like he's putting himself in the place of Zeus as opposed to where he actually is in this relationship, if that makes sense. Um, betrayal in the woods, my favorite kind. I was gonna say that's the other kind of callback is you betrayed the one who calls you friend. Yeah, love it. Everyone should watch Black Sails, unrelated. So after we've had this revelation, Meg uses her power over Apollo to command him to help her open the gates to the grove, which also we should note that Apollo is very aware that Nero plans to burn the grove down as soon as the gates are open, using the bodies of the the children that he lured into the woods as human torches. (laughs) But uh, Meg refuses to believe that. She thinks that once they open the grove that uh, Nero will just want to, we'll figure out a way to use the grove and that he won't burn it down. She'll ask him not to. You know, he wouldn't do that. Maybe the beast would, but Nero wouldn't do that. And also we get a little bit of interesting, fun historical information about Nero and his relationship with fire. Because I think the thing Nero is most famous for is that quote, like, Nero played the fiddle while Rome burned, and here Nero's like, I haven't set the record straight. Like, their fiddles weren't even invented yet. (laughs) I wasn't even there. I just benefited from it greatly. (laughs) This is something that's going to come up a lot that I'm going to get into a lot more, I think, in later books in this series. But I do want to talk about reputation and relationships between the reputation of these emperors and, like, things that have allegedly happened. Because there's there's some really interesting stuff to say about history and how we remember it, um, and also how we talk about it, and also what sticks. So we head into the grove, and when Apollo gets in there, he can hear the voices of all of these trees trying to speak to him at once, and they say... Mm-hmm things that I kind of want to return to later to see if any of these yeah. I know that some of the I, I recognize some of them but I don't recognize all of them um, he hears the trees say caves of blue strike the hue westward burning pages turning Indiana ripe banana happiness approaches serpents and roaches I can tell you what probably more than half of those mean I know the first two I know what those are I want to return to all of those as they come true to see if I like if I if I got them all. But uh, Apollo tries to make it to Meg because he has a wind chime that was given to him by Rhea, I think, because she says she's the one that planted the grove. That was another thought that I I had during that scene was like she's the one who planted it and like the idea of roots and like family ties. That was that was another part of that thought that I had that I never finished. <laughs> So I have a pet theory that a lot of the titans are kind of representative of a lot of the other older indigenous gods of the Mediterranean, because as I mentioned, like the people we know of as the ancient Greeks were not indigenous to Greece, which I feel like there's multiple ways I'm wrong about this. But the Grove of Dodona originated either in the Bronze Age, so predating a lot of what we would think of as like classical Greek civilization, possibly even predating Mycenaeans coming in. So I... Her kind of being the root of this and also at the same time being the one who, like, remembers 
and has the most perspective on all of this new stuff that's been happening, essentially, I do enjoy as, like, an interpretation in that way. Also, the wind chimes and everything were something that we think were in the groves, that there were, like, wind chimes everywhere and stuff. So her, like, giving them more chimes to kind of restart the grove here when it had been, when it's been lost in the ancient world is kind of cool. Hmm. With the wind chimes, I was wondering, it reminded me of May's house, May Castellan's house being surrounded by wind chimes. And I wondered if the same principle of like the reason that they have the wind chime is so that it can like focus the voices of the trees so you can actually hear Mm -hmm. their prophecies. And it made me wonder Mm -hmm. if the same idea applied to the prophecies that May was getting and that like having that many wind chimes around, she was trying to help herself focus the many (laughs) visions that she was receiving. Yeah. I think so. No one says that that's not true, so I I say it's true. I thought of that just now as well, but I was just remembering when we were on the newest Olympian, uh, Mike made fun of Phoebe's parents for having a lot of wind chimes, I guess. I love wind chimes. Why why didn't I have so many wind chimes? And Phoebe was like... I'm trying to focus the voices. (laughs) (laughs) So they managed to uh, hang this wind chime up in the grove and receive a prophecy. Uh, There once was a god named Apollo, who plunged in a cave blue and hollow. Upon a three-seater, the bronze fire-eater was forced death and madness to swallow. So after this, Apollo tries to talk to Meg, but she doesn't want to listen to him. She doesn't want to hear it when he tells her that Nero and the beast are the same person. And she tells him that they're done, and that he needs to go and do whatever he needs to do. Um, And that's like her final command to him all while Apollo is like begging her to stay with him and says uh, we're bound whether you like it or not which is basically what Meg said to him at the beginning of the book that's an interesting one as well because Meg is essentially at least Apollo interprets Meg's actions as trying to give up their connection give up her the fact that she's the one he now has to serve her like she's his demigod essentially and here again it's like it's an oath Meg made rashly because we've got that third reversal of like the third like thing where she's like, no, you're mine, and they've bound each other. To, they've they're bound to each other now via like a supernatural connection, and it's like she's now trying to give up now, and now it's like she's trying to break this oath, but he's saying no, it doesn't work like that, and so it's it's interesting as well that now like it's like a reversal of Meg being held to this oath, yeah, in a, of a way. Mm-hmm. So. While Nero was here, he was also dropping hints that he planned to level Camp Half-Blood um, and set Long Island on fire. If by dropping hints you mean saying. Straight up uh, saying. <laughs> basically, Rome had a lot of fires when Nero was emperor, and part of the destruction of the fires was he was able to take a lot of prime real estate and rebuild and build up these um, palaces that I believe he called the Orum... I forget the exact word. Aura means gold, though. So, like, golden palaces and all this, like, lavishness and extravagance. And um, he was very much looked down upon that for that action. And so he's basically saying, we're going to raise Long Island and build a giant palace for all, like, that comes, like, encompasses all of Long Island. Yeah. Crazy. I was, like, I was imagining what that would look like, and I was like, that sounds... And then he was like, the North Shore, that'll be, that'll be our beachfront. And I was like... You've got the whole South Shore. (laughs) You don't want this. (laughs) The North Shore is Long Island Sound. The South Shore is the ocean. Nero, you definitely want that one. (laughs) Yeah. Another thing is that Apollo is finally able to summon some amount of divine strength while he's saving the campers, while he's trying to pull them all to safety. 
is it got me thinking as well about music and that being like the one godly power he seems to have retained when he gets these moments of like divine inspiration or when he's able to use his powers like they're all things that are for other people they're not really Mm. like things that are for him which given that this is essentially a punishment by zeus for like not falling in line it is very interesting to me that the things that are like the least godly are the you know in terms of like how he acts before the events of this book like things like showing vulnerability like being selfless like those are the things he's essentially being rewarded for that allow him to reconnect to his godly strength and power and like it makes sense to me on a like kids book level (laughs) but i'm curious how this plays into the themes of the rest of the series Mm. yeah because i can't imagine that that's like something that like zeus worked into his yeah the the way i'm thinking about it now is it's possible that like this is the thing that i feel like maybe zeus perceives to be the least strong or the thing he's least likely to summon and use or it's meant to teach him humility but it's actually giving him a window into like a different way in a way that maybe was not anticipated oh anyway in order to level camp half-blood nero is sending a giant statue of himself as Apollo, um, the Colossus Neronis. Yeah, and Apollo has to look at his, like, godly form, naked and glorious, essentially, and fight it. Yeah. It's very... The, 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 the themes and metaphors in this book really are not subtle. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to dig deep here. We really don't. It's, it's right there. But I'm so happy to have themes again, Phoebe. I'm so happy to not have to dig. Right? It's like I kept having thoughts and then the book would confirm them. Like I I was looking at this and I was like, wow, it's really him having to like address the fact that Nero and him are, are one and the same in many ways. And that like what he's fighting right now is something that he created. And then Apollo like two pages later was like, and I looked at it and I thought to myself. <laughs> <laughs> I guess what you're saying is Apollo, the god of storytelling, is anticipating that he's he's really up with the storytelling. He really, is what you're it's saying. crazy. He like knows how to uh, tell a story. But yeah. So the the Colossus rises up, and I was thinking to myself, this is kind of similar to Talos, isn't it? Interesting. And then someone was like, "Does it have a hatch like Talos?" Which how would they even know? I heard stories. And Apollo's just they heard it on the Argo too. <laughs> <laughs> and Apollo is like, no, we're not having another Bianca D'Angelo on my watch. Can you imagine, though, if there had been a hatch and, like, someone had to go in and, like, Nico's there. Nico was there. Maybe you would have had the same idea because it's genetic. <laughs> See, that would have been good. Rick? <laughs> I take it back. The storytelling in this, not good. Not up to five. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. We've already kind of hit the climax. I feel like we've already hit the climax of the book. So I feel right. like anything after this, this. This scene, I always forget it exists because I yeah. am fo- so focused on the Grove stuff that I like, I'm always yeah. like, oh yeah, and then a, a giant robot shows up at the end that they fight. <laughs> we do learn something interesting, which is apparently that all of these autom- automatons, they have a life force in them. Yeah. Like they're... They're, like, usually, like, wind or nature spirits that have been kind of, like, trapped and put inside of them. Which is a wild just piece of information <laughs> to just casually drop and probably never come back to. I hope they do, but yeah. <laughs> wild. It's like, oh, wait, so you're saying that all the automatons in this series are just, like, Cybermen? Is Faces an automaton? Festus? Yeah. Yeah! I mean, okay, but <laughs> he got his, like, 
autonomy, 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 when like Piper like spoke it into him by loving him so much. Right. But he also was definitely alive before that a little bit. Festus has a whole spirit inside him. Anyway. Anyway, they fight this giant robot. Percy shows up. He promised at the beginning of the book that he was going to come check in on Apollo and Meg over the weekend. Um, so it turns out it's the weekend and Percy's here to check on them. But in the end, he actually isn't all that necessary. Yeah, he doesn't really turn the tide. Yeah, he does convince people to like help him distract the giant robot while uh, mm-hmm. Apollo tries to shoot a plague arrow at it to like try and poison the spirit that's inside it. But that's about it. Um, that's as helpful yeah. as he is. But that's what they end up doing. They end up shooting a plague arrow. Yeah. He ends up making an impossible archery shot, essentially, with a plague arrow that he's able to f- squeeze together just enough godly power to pull it all together and give Nero's head, which he's noticed doesn't have nostrils, a case of hay fever through the ear that causes it to sneeze its own head off in an incredible nat 20 roll for an incredible <laughs> D&D moment. It really is. Now that you say that, yeah, it's very D&D. <laughs> After the battle, they're talking about the prophecy that Apollo got in the grove. And when Percy hears it, he gets excited because he thinks that he's decoded at least part of it. And I'm so glad that Percy gets to have this moment where he, he, mm. he pieces it together and he's actually right because he <laughs> takes three seater fire eater, whatever that line is. Mm. And that happiness is approaching to mean that Festus is on his way, which means that Leo is on his way. And it turns out that he's right. Leo shows up. Percy and Calypso have the most awkward reunion um, on earth. And I love that <laughs> for them. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just the, the the vibe between them is so funny to me because it'd be so easy to play it off like like with Rachel and Percy are basically able to just become friends after their yeah. whole thing but Calypso shows up and it's just like total Apollo says that it's like the tensest reunion he's ever seen in his life <laughs> It's just so funny to me. This whole scene is so funny to me. I was also like, why is Percy so happy to see Leo? Because isn't like, the last time they interacted in like Olympia? Yeah, that was the last time they talked. But I understand. I understand being happy to see the, the guy you just spent a month with who you thought died and all of your friends have been mourning him. But he's like sleeping in the engine room. Like he wasn't talking to anybody. Like this is all canon. Yeah, that's true. You know what? I'm sure that Percy blames himself a little bit for the fact that Leo died because Frank stopped him oh, from going Frank after him. Oh, because Frank held him back. Yeah, you're right. Frank made a big sacrifice. That enormous sacrifice that happened in <laughs> Blood of Olympus. Because of duty. It's been haunting Percy. And now that Leo's oh, back, yeah. he, can accept th- he can accept it. <laughs> and where we leave this book is Leo agrees to take Apollo west because they're assuming that the next oracle will be somewhere in the middle of the United States. I love that like Leo and Calypso are like, woo, we're done with our big journey. And they're like, great, saddle up. Right. Just immediately ready to go. I was like, you guys don't want to rest? You've been lost in the sea of monsters, apparently fighting Polyphemus. I'm imagining like that was like what happened in the Aeneid though, where it's like, oh, we did everything Percy did, but like, it didn't, it wasn't actually that hard. He just, he just replayed <laughs> everything the person <Percy> did. <laughs> what was my bead for Bronze Dragon? Oh, you gave it an anthill. I did give it an anthill. I was trying to remember if I gave an ant already. Yes, you gave an anthill. No, you know what? My bead is going to be, it's going to be the wind chime. He stole mine. 
Okay, let me think of another one. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I'm going to say that mine is the symbol uh, for Demeter that, that floats above Meg's head when she gets claimed. The communist symbol that <laughs> appears. The communist bead. <laughs> the communist bead <laughs> is what I'll be making. <laughs> all for listening to monster donut <laughs> that was like a flight attendant voice i know that's what i was kind of i was going for that and then i was like why am i going for that no go for it some more that's great <laughs> we the temperature outside is 89 degrees <laughs> next time the dark prophecy in which we get to visit my favorite of the ancient oracles i am extremely excited why you'll find out yep it's because it's creepy as fuck that's why i love it <laughs> I felt like this book had horror vibes. It had a little bit of horror vibes. It was like, um, it was like a, maybe this is like the other big analysis thought we have is like, they're all like different horror, story, horror genre, subgenre. You know what? They might this be. This is like the cursed <laughs> summer camp. Okay. There, yep. Okay. And then we'll figure out, the, yeah, we'll figure out the next one. Yeah. We'll figure it out as we go. We'll figure it out as we go. This yeah, is good. <laughs> People who skip our outros are going to be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Thank you all if you have left us a review or rating um, wherever you listen to our podcast. It's always really cool to hear from y'all. And if you would like to reach out to us or do so via a rating or review or the Spotify questions, please do. It really helps us out. Also, if you want to email us, you can email us at monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com. And um, we, of course, are going to be doing a wrap-up as well as we always do. Although... Depending on the strike, we might not have time. We might be covering the show by the end of this series. But that that's in the pipeline. That's our plan, assuming that that happens. But of course, we have um, other contingency plans if the studio heads continue to be the worst. Yeah, you can also find us on social media at PJOPod. We're on Twitter. Sorry, X. No, we're on Twitter. <laughs> and, uh, TikTok and Instagram. Uh, at PGOPod. You can also see Phoebe's amazing art on those platforms. That is where you can also see and purchase Phoebe's art. Yeah. Also on imprint, if you actually want to purchase the art instead of like a t-shirt with the art on it, if you want uh, like an art print, you should go to imprint, um, which is also in our link tree. And if any of Phoebe's art that you love that isn't currently available in our merch store is something you want merch of, let us know. Oh yeah. We can make that happen. Yes, very easily. Until the next one. Yeah. Bye. Goodbye, everyone. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.